In John chapter 10, verse 30, we'll begin reading. And then we'll read down all the way to the end of verse 42. John 10, verse 30, all the way to the end of verse 42. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father of For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them God's unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemies, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John had first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. The title of my message is the last words of John chapter 10. Many believed on him there. Get to it before the end of this morning's message. A little bit of a review. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the Pharisees and to the Jews. They have been persecuting him and have been seeking to kill him since John chapter 5. For six chapters, our Lord has contrasted his message of salvation with the Jews' religious message. He has corrected their thinking concerning Moses, concerning their religious feasts, their understanding concerning God, and God's way of salvation. During this time, the Jews had been resisting him, had been resisting his message, And have been resisting his works, rejecting his works. In John chapter 10, our Lord adds another emphasis. In John 10, our Lord established a contrast this time between his people and the Jews. The Jews thought they were God's people. Many today still say they are. But Jesus in John 10 and verse 26 says, you are not my sheep. At the same time, our Lord used terms like his own sheep in verse 3 and my sheep in verse 27. For those who were truly his, he then added one very critical and important truth. He testified that he is the only one who can give eternal life to his sheep. Verse 27, 28, and 29. In that same testimony... As our Lord was speaking from 27 to 30, he confirmed that he and his Father are one. 
His message in John 10.31 is that the Godhead is one person. There is only one God. Brother, would you mind? The Godhead is one in person. The Godhead is one in power. Each is almighty. And each working together to accomplish the salvation of sinners who are dead in their trespasses and in their sins. Thirdly, in John 10, he said the Godhead is, is teaching that the Godhead is one in purpose. That the Father has given the Son his sheep and that the only begotten Son of God has come into the world to save sinners from their sins and then that the Holy Spirit will gather all those given to the Son and bring them to Him. One in purpose. Fourth, the Godhead is one in performance. We looked at this last week. In works, in what they do before mankind, concerning the works, concerning all things relating to God's activity from creation forward, but particularly the works regarding God's salvation of His people. And after confirming that he and his father were one, the Bible says the Jews took up stones to stone him or to kill him. As we saw last week, they considered him to be a man and therefore they considered that he was blaspheming when he said that he and his father were one. They understood that he made himself equal with God and in doing that claimed to be God himself. And so they took up stones to stone him. But as I said last week, these verses reveal the wickedness and the depravity that can reside in the heart of those who are very religious and appear to be righteous to others. But in a, when their religion is crossed and there is a conflict, they pick up stones to stone him. Jesus Christ faces his enemies beginning in verse 34. It's where we'll start this morning. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Let's look at these verses and break them down, because almost every uh, statement here is just laying the axe at the root of their false religion. Is it not written in your law, is how he addresses them. With stones in hand, ready to stone him to death, he faces them and says, Doesn't the word of God say? One commentator said, Does it not stand written? And from that I drew this sentence. Is it not written? And does it not remain written? Our Lord bases his whole argument in the next few verses upon the word of God. Brethren, we can learn from this. Standing before the Jews with stone in hands to kill him, accused unrighteously of blaspheming, he says, is it not written? Doesn't the word of God say thus and thus? 
He addresses the Jews what they said they believed. They believed the Old Testament to be the Word of God. They believed God had given it to them. And they were responsible to believe it and to obey it. They believed that. And yet their religious beliefs were not based upon the Word of God. They had substituted, thus saith the Lord, for the religious traditions that had developed over hundreds of years. And with the statement, well, our rabbi says... The same is true of many religions claiming to be Christian in our day. Both Catholic and Protestant religions are in fact based on human tradition more than upon the Word of God alone. We have this problem when we deal with people who are religious. Is their religion based on the Word of God? Is it not written in your law? And then he quotes out of Isaiah, out of Psalm 682. I said you are gods. In making this statement, our Lord places his focus upon one word. The English word gods. Their whole argument is that he is a man who has blasphemed. Jesus comes back with one word out of the Old Testament. One English word. Can one word, one word out of the scripture destroy false religion? Can one word do it? Do we have to have these great dissertations and volumes of books to prove thus and thus is wrong? Or is one word out of the word of God sufficient? I have found throughout my whole ministry that those who are thoroughly ingrained in their religious teachings can be corrected if their heart is desiring to be. Can be corrected with one word in his definition. A properly defined word out of the scriptures. For instance, my whole ministry has been based upon the biblical definition of the word grace. No matter what religion I face, no matter who I am talking to in the world, no matter what religion they espouse, if they are Involved in a religion that teaches works for salvation, one word is a sword that will bring, or an axe that will be laid at that word. And that word is grace. Translated, the Greek word is charis, translated into the English grace, and it means the divine influence upon the heart with its reflection in the life. God starts on the inside and it shows up on the outside. You're starting on the outside, hoping something shows up on the inside. It is just the opposite of the scriptures. One word is all you need to understand. In God's work of salvation, it is in the heart that shows up on the outside. It is not on the outside trying to work up something on the inside. One word is all that's sufficient. Now, those of you that talk to me know that I have an arsenal of scriptures from time to time that I can refer to. But I'm talking about... The ministry of people, if they just understood grace, 
their whole religion would fall to the ground and crumble. If they just understood the definition of one word. Every religion that sprinkles or pours and calls it baptism, whether on infants or adults, can be corrected with one word. The Greek word baptizo, transliterated into the English baptize, means to dip or to fully immerse. There is not any situation in the New Testament where that word can be used for sprinkle or pour. Not once. Search it for yourself. And yet they say they baptize by sprinkling or pouring. The adults in New Zealand were sprinkled. Baptizo. One word. All I need is one word. It solves that issue forever. In fact, arguments from our forefathers have been based upon this one word. If you understood this word, you could not practice this way, they would say to the Catholics. If you understood this word, you could not do this. In arguing from one word, the English word God's, Our Lord is testifying of two great truths, truth, great doctrines that I believe we must understand if we're going to fight the battle in the day in which we live. And that is this. If we're going to believe that the Bible is the absolute authority on all things to which it speaks, and that it is true, that is, to understand the authority and the veracity, the truthfulness of the Word of God, we have to understand two doctrines. Both implied in this text right here. The first one is this. The first truth or doctrine that we can draw out of this verse is this. Verbal inspiration. Children, don't worry about big words. I've told you that. It means that every word came out of the mouth of God. Okay? Every word came out of the mouth of God. We see it in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Where the scripture says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed. Children, you cannot speak out when you are breathing in. You can only speak out when air is coming out. God breathed this word. It is found again in Matthew 4 and verse 4 where our Lord quotes and gives a definition for the Old Testament text found in the book of Deuteronomy. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Verbal inspiration. It came out of God's mouth. But there's a second doctrine that is very critical to understand. And that is called verbal preservation. That God preserves His Word. Meaning that that Word spoken by God has been preserved by God so that we may be assured that what we have today is the same as what God spoke many years ago. This truth is in this text, if you will look. These two doctrines are mostly denied in the day in which we live. Many, if not most, believe we no longer have the actual words of God that He spoke and are likely, they say, to never discover the actual words God spoke. Yet our Lord based His whole argument in John chapter 10 
on one word spoken by God many hundreds of years ago and copied down how many hundreds of times from the time that it was first spoken until the time it was spoken here in John chapter 10. Copied down over and over and over again over generations until Christ picks it up and puts it in his mouth and says, this is what is written in your law. How does he know it? Well, because he gave it and he has preserved it. Our Lord certainly did not believe like many in our day. He believed God's preserved his own word from generation to generation. And brethren, we need to also... The idea that somehow or another God's words have been lost and we depend on men to discover what they are and those men tell us they may not ever discover the actual words lays and acts at true Christianity to destroy it. Here in John chapter 10, our Lord said, Is it not written? Is it not written in your law? That was a long time ago. And yet he picks it up today as though it were exactly the same truth as it was when it was written. This truth is confirmed in the New Testament in Matthew 24 and verse 35. Our Lord said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I actually had somebody say to me one time, Brother Pat, he's talking about future things here. The words relating to future things are not going to pass away. And I said to that person, I said, if God is able to preserve his words regarding future things, is it a leap of faith to believe that he might preserve his word concerning past things? And he stood there like a deer in front of a blinded light and said, I hadn't thought about that. Think about it, brother. I don't believe that's what Matthew 24, 35 is dealing with. I believe he's dealing with the whole of the Word of God. But the context is, speaking of last things. But Peter comes along in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, and he says, But the Lord of the Word of the Lord, the Word of the Lord endureth forever. True or false? God's Word endures forever. Must be true. Hasn't been lost. It has endured until this time. And Peter adds, and this is the word, that word which has endured to this time when I'm preaching. This is the word, he says, by which the gospel is preached unto you in his day. The word of the Lord continues to endure forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you in this day. The English word gods come from a Greek word in the New Testament and a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. Both refer to God. But in certain contexts refer to those who were judges. Those who judged the people with the law of God in the place of God. In the Old Testament, you'll you'll immediately understand this word or say, oh, I've heard that before. In the Old Testament, the little G-O-D-S is Elohim. That's the Hebrew word that it comes from. It refers to the one true and living God. And yet, God used it to speak of judges. Go with me. Take time to study the scriptures this morning. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll take a little time this morning. Exodus 22 and verse 9. Exodus 22 and verse 9. 
In Exodus 22.9, God is speaking, giving instructions concerning how Israel is to function. And he says in verse 9, For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox or for ass, or, or for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or any, for any manner of lost thing which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, Elohim. And all, and come before the judges, and whom the judges, Elohim, shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. Judges. They sit in judgment using the word of God to settle issues regarding matters of law in Israel. Psalm 82 is where our text is quoted out of John chapter 10. Psalm 82, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 before I go to verse 6 and 7. Verse 1, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods, Elohim. And judging among the gods, Elohim, says to them, How long will you judge unjustly and accept the person of the wicked? Judging among the judges, among the gods, Elohim. How long are you going to judge unjustly and accept the person of the wicked? Now drop down to verse 6, where our text in John 10 picks up. I have said ye are gods, Elohim. Verse 6. And this is the text that is quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ. I have said, ye are gods, verse 6. And then in verse, uh, and shall you, uh, sh- and, uh, let me start all over. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but, what? You shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Verse 7 of Psalm 82. One more psalm, because it can not only refer to judges that judge the nation using the law of God, but it can also refer to idols, false gods. Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5. Go with me over there. Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Little G-O-D-S in English. Elohim referring not to judges, but to idols as the next verse confirms. For all the gods, Elohim, of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. And so this great word, Elohim, which refers to the one true and living God in the Old Testament, used for judges among men and false gods among idol worshipers. In the New Testament, the word gods shows up at the Greek word theos or T-H-E-O-S, Theos. It is used for the true and living God in 1 Timothy 3.16. The scripture says, Great is the um, mystery of godliness. God, Theos, is manifest in the flesh. God himself. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, go with me over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it is used another way. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, 4. As concerning those 
therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. Verse 5. For though there be many that be called gods, speaking of idols, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, Paul continues. Just because a Greek word is used in reference to God can, does not mean that it cannot be used in another way. And this is the argument that Lord Jesus Christ is set before the Jews. If God called men gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, or what our Lord is saying there is the scripture is the final authority on the subject. It cannot be set aside as the final authority on this subject. If the scripture uses the word gods, referring to magistrates, then it settles the issue. I wish it was simple like that. In dealing with someone. Well, the scripture says grace. Oh, no, but what about this? And what about that? And what? I wish it was simple. Uh, the scripture cannot be broken. That's a simple statement made by our Lord. It settles the issue on this thing. We don't have to have an argument. We don't have to have dissertations written. We, we, we know the scripture says this. That's the end of the conversation. Not so with the Jews and not so with many in religion today. If the word gods may be applied to judges, them in the Old Testament, then it may be applied to others. And therefore, it cannot be blasphemy to use the word in reference to the Son of God, who is much more exalted, brethren, by the, than the magistrates of Israel. He is, as he has claimed to be, Messiah, the Savior of sinners, the Son of God. This is his argument. Say ye of him, in verse 36, Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest? Because I said, I am the Son of God. Say ye, in contradiction to the word of God. A common practice among those who claim to be religious followers of God even claim to be Christians. Say ye in contradiction to the word of God? This is what our Lord is dealing with here as he stands before those who are about to try to kill him. Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified. The English word sanctified is derived from the Greek word hagiadzo. This is very important. Listen carefully. Its primary meaning is not to make holy or to cleanse from sin. We need to be careful when we make statements. Its primary meaning is not to make holy or to cleanse from sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. He cannot be made holy. He is holy. He is God. He does not need to be cleansed from sin. He has no sins from which to be cleansed. Instead, its primary meaning is to set apart. It means to be set apart for that which is common, used commonly, and to be set apart unto God for a divine purpose. It means to be devoted to God. It means to be separated to God and to the purposes of God. 
In John chapter 17, our Lord will use this word again. John 17 and verse 19. He says, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. And then he goes on to say that they also might be sanctified through the word. Through the word. The same Greek word used twice. I sanctify myself so they might be sanctified. I make myself holy so they can be made holy? No. I make myself cleansed from sin so they might be made cleansed from sin? No. I set apart myself so to the purposes of God so that they might be set apart to the purposes of God. It's used again in Hebrews 2 and verse 11. Hebrews 2 and verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He that sanctifieth, he that sets men apart for the purpose of God, are set apart for the purpose of God. And there's a whole teaching that goes along with this. But brethren... The Lord Jesus Christ does not use this word in relation to the removal of sin. But in the doctrinal sense of being set aside for the purpose of God. And child of God, if you understand you have been set aside for the purpose of God, there are some things you say, well, I can't do that. I'm set aside for the purpose of God. I'm God's. Look at this world. I don't want to be part of it. I'm God's. I belong to Him. He set me aside in eternity. He gave me to His Son. The Son set me aside at the cross. The Spirit of God sanctified me in when I was regenerated, justified and sanctified. Set me apart for God. Changes your whole view of life. If you understand that Christianity has set you apart from the rest of the world. Say ye of him whom the Father hath set apart, sanctified, and sent into the world. Sanctified and sent. Separated for this purpose of being sent into the world to die for, on behalf of his people. Set apart to accomplish the salvation of his elect. Set apart by God. Determining to save his people from their sins. And he will accomplish that task that he was sent for. Set apart for and sent to save his people from their sins. Sayest thou. Sayest thou to him set apart, sanctified and sent by the father. Thou blasphemest. Because I said I'm the son of God. Here is the Jews, very religious, Pharisees, doctors of the law, faced with a quote out of Psalm 82, one verse, with emphasis on one word. What will they do? What will they do? You're going to change your verdict because your word says that you view me as a man and other men have been called gods. Are you going to change your verdict that I've blasphemed? You're going to throw down those stones? Accept what I have said from the very word that you have said you believe? No. No. Verse 39 says they sought again to take him. So at the very least, they would be inconsistent with their religion. Yes, we believe the word of God, but here it doesn't apply to us. 
this tradition says takes precedent over this word. But more than likely, they are willingly contradicting the word of God set before them in order to hold to their tradition. They were unwilling to hear what he was saying. Therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ points him yet again to another set of voices. He points them to his works. Verse 37 and verse 38. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. There it is. He lays it out before them. He now switches from the Word of God to the works of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But, if I do, though you believe not me, that is, if you you don't believe what I'm saying... Believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. If I do not the works of my Father, he rests his whole argument, his whole case on the works that they have seen him do. The works he claimed were of my Father. The works whose source is my Father in heaven. He uses the phrase, my father, again. It irritates them. From John chapter 5, he's been saying, my father. Here is another repetition of an often stated truth. Our Lord's whole ministry is based on the fact, I am the Son of God sent from my Father in heaven. My Father sent me. My Father said. My Father does. And they know that makes him equal with God, and they are incensed, enraged. The good works done by our Lord Jesus Christ speak of his deity. They, they testify to who he says he is. They add to their voice as a second witness, which the Jews required, testifying to the truth of who he is, of why he came, and what he accomplished while he was on the earth. Those three things. Our Lord had already spoken this truth to them over and again. He speaks it, John 5 and verse 36, For the works which my Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me, he says. John chapter 10 and verse 25, only a few verses earlier, he says, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. John 15, he'll say it again in in another few weeks, If I had not done among them the works which none other men did, they had not had sin. And now they have both seen and hated both me and my Father. Peter uses this same argument on the day of Pentecost. Because the Jews had not only rejected the words of Christ, but they had rejected his works. On the day of Pentecost, ye men of Israel, hear the words. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved to God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourself also know. You know that it's God. And you close your ears and you blind your eyes and you shut your mouth and you pick up another stone in case the first one will not work. If I do not the works, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works. Verse 37. Brethren, every day the world, 
the whole world is faced with this same statement. And every day they have to reject the testimony of his works in order to remain unbelieving. That is why the world must find a way to discredit his works. They must find a way to say it did not happen. They must find a way to call into question the work of God. Beginning with creation, it did not happen. God's definition of marriage is not right. Creation didn't happen. It's all a fable. The Reed Sea instead of the Red Sea. It did not happen. It could not happen. We must find a way to discredit it. Because if one ounce of what God said is true, then we are forced to believe Him. We're forced to say, this then is the Word of God. We can no longer believe that all religions in the world are the same. We can no longer teach that all men in the world have a spark of divinity and they're just trying to get to God. They're just doing it their own way. If this is what God said it is, then your conclusion is you have to believe on Christ. If His works remain undisputed, His testimony remains undisputed. And so the world is feverishly trying to figure out a way to say God did not create this world. That's just the beginning. And then we close the chapter with these words. Therefore they sought again to take him. But he escaped out of their hands. This is not the first time, it will not be the last. He will not die until the day appointed by his father. Verse 40. And went away again beyond Jordan into a place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spoke of this man were true. And there, and not there, and many believed on him there. He went away beyond Jordan into a place where John first baptized and there he abode. He left Jerusalem and he would not return again until a short time before they would crucify him. Leaving Jerusalem at this time in his ministry testifies of two things. First, his public ministry among the religious Jews is over. The nation had rejected him and he had left them desolate. A judicial blindness would be placed upon Israel and in 70 AD Israel would be utterly destroyed. One stone not left upon another. But secondly, Though his public ministry upon the religious Jews is over, his ministry among the lost continues. Yea, it continues even unto this day. But it continues in obscure places. Out of the way places. Not in the big cities, not in Rome or Jerusalem, but in a little place in northeast India or a little 
place outside of San Antonio or a little place here or there. His ministry can now be said to be outside the gate, outside the holy city, outside the mainstream and generally accepted religion. He does not cease his ministry. He only ceases it outside of the religion of the day. And they resorted unto him there and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man are true. And many believed on him there. Three years have passed since John was beheaded and laid to rest by his disciples. Yet, brethren, his ministry, his memory, and his testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ is still very much alive. Him being yet death still speaketh. I want you to pay attention to the testimony God gives to John in this text. He said in John's, in, uh, in, in the Gospels, our Lord Jesus Christ had said that of all the prophets, none were greater than John. None. The greatest of all the prophets born of a woman. And yet, what does the Bible say here in this text concerning this great prophet, this greatest of prophets? What? He did no miracle. He just opened his mouth and spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he said of that man is true. How many clamor for miracles today? They want to see a manifestation of God in such a way so they can believe, so they can have confidence that God hasn't stopped working or something, I don't know what, but I want to see. I've seen some things in my ministry. One time my wife and I were invited to a church, and I I won't call the name of it because you know it. And and, uh, I was called there to preach, but I was called there a day early to speak to the church so that I might testify of the miraculous things that I've seen in India. And I saw some things. And as I've said over and over and over again, I do not emphasize it. It is not the foundation of my ministry. So I said, we're gathered today, we're gathered here to talk about the miracles that I've seen in Northeast India. And I've seen some. I've seen God do some amazing things. Let me start with this one. The most amazing of all the things that I've seen God do. I was preaching. And God saved a sinner. And he looked at me. I said, do you realize what a miracle that is? That a dead man is raised from the dead. A dead woman. A blind person is now able to see. A deaf is now able to hear. And he that used his tongues to lie and curse and deceive now uses his tongue to praise God. Do you realize what a miracle that is? That's the greatest miracle I've ever seen in my whole life. In my whole ministry. I've never seen any greater. Well, let's talk about some other things. Yes, I'll talk about them if you want me to. But I wanted to tell you what the greatest one is. All the rest pale in light of the fact that God would save a sinner under the preaching of the gospel. John did no miracle. While multitudes clamor for a miracle in our day, few are content to simply hear the word of God preached. 
and wait to see what God's going to do with that word in the heart of those to whom it is preached. Few trust God to work with his word. What I need is miracles so that people can believe. In the wilderness, outside the camp, the people believed on him because of his word and not because of his works. They were convinced by the word of God, not miracles, brethren. Convinced by what John the Baptist had said, convinced by what the Lord Jesus Christ had said, not what he did. He speaks to the religious people and says, haven't you seen what I've done? Haven't you heard what I've said? Haven't you seen what I've done? But in the wilderness, there is no miracles. Why? Because they're convinced of the word of God. They believed on him there. The Greek word behind the English word there is emphatic. In that place, they believed. They had not believed in Jerusalem. But in that place, they believed. John had said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. They believed it. Will you believe here in this place? If not, others will believe in other places. God is not thwarted in his efforts to save sinners. He preached in Jerusalem and then left and went to the wilderness. And there they believed on him. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? On the basis of what he has said about himself? On the basis of what he's done? Will you call upon him to save you from your sins? Let's pray.